0: What is intelligence? Like many Platonic ideals, I think many of us have a rough set of images and concepts that appear in our mind's eye when we think about the subject. We might think about smart people like. Ada Lovelace or Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking, their brilliant analytical minds. Or maybe we go in a more artistic direction, thinking about the cleverness of people like Mark Twain or Maya Angelou or Haiti Lamar, the latter of whom was an actress, but also the co-inventor of torpedo guidance systems technologies for the Allies during World War II, the fundamentals of which were later incorporated into modern Bluetooth technologies. Some people who we might consider to be intelligent are clever in ways that are hard to describe. They are the smart person you know who you ask when you have a question about whatever or have a problem of any kind to solve, but you're unable to say why exactly they fill that role in your life. Maybe they never invented a torpedo guidance system, or like Ada Lovelace, essentially invented the concept of general-purpose programming, but they're smart, they're clever, they're intelligent. And you can tell all that without being able to quantify it. All of which is to say that there are different types of intelligence. At least that seems to be the case. There are those who can process mathematical concepts with remarkable skill. There are those who can write brilliant plays or compose amazing symphonies. And there are those who seem to be generally capable in some less easily defined way. Part of the difficulty in coming up with better, more specific labels for intelligent people, I think, is that the word intelligence is somewhat limiting. Words are symbolic, they're used as shorthand to help us discuss topics, but are latently limited in both their brevity, they can't accurately cover all ground we might want to cover and in their inconsistency, their variation in meaning from person to person. To some people, intelligence is purely that which can be measured by an IQ, or intelligence quotient, test. For others, it's book smarts. For still others, it's the capacity to learn, or to understand and derive new meaning from data, or to be able to conceive of things no one has ever conceived of before or it's the capacity to memorize or theorize or organize. Some definitions get substantially more specific. In an article entitled The Crack-Up, published in a series of 1936 editions of Esquire magazine, the author F. Scott Fitzgerald discussed intelligence as such. Quote, The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time, And still retain the ability to function. One should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless and yet be determined to make them otherwise. The Greek philosopher Socrates had his own opinion on the matter, which he described thusly I know that I am intelligent because I know that I know nothing. The French psychologist Alfred Binet, who developed the original IQ test, the Binet-Simon scale, understandably had a more quantifiable view on the matter. Quote, Comprehension, inventiveness, direction, and criticism. Intelligence is contained in these four words. End quote. But many views on intelligence, including the ones I've just mentioned, assume that there is such a thing, something concrete we can perhaps measure, or at the very least something that we can put a label on and accurately encompass. Maybe intelligence is more like consciousness, something for which we have a label, but which we don't truly understand yet. There are many different conceptions about what consciousness might be, and even some provable and disprovable theories, but we still talk about consciousness, at least in casual conversation, as if we're experts. We've decided that some animals are conscious and others are not. We've decided that we are conscious, though we can't agree on what that term means. We've decided that it's most definitely a thing that we should label, something we should distinguish from non-consciousness, but we don't know where the dividing line might be and whether or not that line will be where we think it is, where any of us think it is, if and when we finally locate and quantify it. It may be that consciousness is a collection of other things, none of which we've worked into our contemporary consciousness formula. Like miasmas, our modern conception of consciousness could be conceptual filler until we learn some new fundamental knowledge that will allow us to see the truth. It could be that intelligence is the same. It could be a word without meaning, or a word we haven't learned enough to define accurately yet. It may be that we're using it like we might use the word fern, which is a specific type of plant, when in fact it should be a word that means something more akin to plants or life. It could be a super broad term with many requisite subterms, none of which we've invented yet. And just as we would be limited in our experience of the world if all ferns or all plants were just called life, and us lacking the requisite subterms that would allow us to tell cats from ferns, from microorganisms, they'd all just be life. Some of them big life, some of them small, some fuzzy life, and so on. And that would limit our experience of the world. So it's probably best to assume that as we learn more about intelligence, or whatever concept takes its place someday, we'll need an entirely new vocabulary to discuss it as well. What I want to talk about today is adjacent to intelligence, in that it relates to how we think and how we perceive the world and it may be a subject that we lack the proper vocabulary, at least in English, to discuss in a complete and granular way. Today I want to talk about opinions, what they are, how we acquire them, and how they change over the course of our lives. (music) You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is an independent, listener-supported show, which means that it is brought to you by you. If you'd like to contribute to the production of this show, there are many different ways you can do so. You can become a patron on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash things. you can leave a review up on iTunes or wherever you are subscribed to this podcast or you can share it with a friend or your social network of choice. Any and all efforts in this regard are very much appreciated. A huge thanks to everyone who has already helped out in some way, shape, or form. I appreciate that. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors, the first of which today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you'll receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice this won't cost you a thing you can cancel your trial before you pay a cent but you'll get to keep that audiobook no matter what and either way it helps support this show monetarily which is very much appreciated and the other sponsor today is Hostgator the hosting company that I have been using for many years and very gladly If you go to HostGator.com slash LKT, you'll receive a substantial discount off of their already very reasonable prices. HostGator.com slash LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article I want to start from today comes from Vox, and it's entitled, Republicans' beliefs are bending to Trump. Here's why they might not even notice. This piece is based on a collection of data that has emerged in the past year about the evolving opinions of a large number of American voters who self-define as Republicans. I have quibbles with a lot of the research that's available of this kind, It's difficult to ensure you have a representative group that's being tallied, for instance, and it's difficult to know, especially in this media ecosystem, whether or not those giving their answers are messing with the polling firm for some reason. Their answers and the data resultantly become suspect. But that said, reputable pollsters from Gallup and Pew have found some fairly dramatic shifts in the numbers they're getting from people they poll on a variety of political positions. In 2015, for instance, 12% of Republicans held a favorable view of the Russian President Vladimir Putin, while today, 32% have a generally favorable opinion of him. In 2015, 56% of Republicans favored free trade but that number has dropped to 36% in 2017. This article then dives into research done on the psychology of opinions, and particularly how and why people change their minds about things. It notes that the results of a recent experiment that were published in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology found that, quote, when people change their mind on a subject, they have a hard time recalling that they ever felt another way. End quote. The article goes on to say, quote, It's an intriguing finding in part because it affirms that people think their beliefs are more stable than they actually are, which means they may be less open to information that conflicts with their belief. It's also further evidence that despite what we may think, we don't hold consistent ideological views. We tend to agree with whatever our leaders agree with, end quote. The research paper written about that experiment was entitled Poor Metacognitive Awareness of Belief Change. Metacognitive awareness referring to thinking about thinking, and in this case, thinking about how we personally think. In other words, the title itself declares that we are bad at noting our own thought pattern changes when it comes to changes in our beliefs. There's another point made in this article that I find to be particularly compelling. Other studies show we have a bias to believe that our past selves are more similar to our current selves than they actually are. People in romantic relationships that have gone sour tend to misremember the fact that they were ever happy with their partners. Our memories of the past are constructed with information available in our immediate present, and we often confuse immediacy and familiarity with truth. Just repeating a lie once can make it more accepted as truth. There's also this fun study published in PLUS ONE in 2013. In it, researchers gave participants an opinion poll to fill out, and then sneakily changed their answers. When they gave back the polls, the participants didn't realize the answers had been changed. A full 92% of the participants accepted and endorsed our Altered Political Survey score, the researchers concluded. End quote. Part of the issue here, and probably the smallest part, though it's definitely significant enough to mention, is that our polls may be skewed by this tendency to change and not recall the changes to our beliefs. Another part of the issue is that we're more likely to be swayed by opinions that are handed to us when we didn't have particularly strong views to begin with, In the case of the aforementioned study, the topic used to set a baseline for opinions and note the changes of opinions was the spanking of kids. But this applies widely to all kinds of topics in all aspects of life. According to a forthcoming paper in the Journal of Politics, only about 20-40% to of the U.S. population has stable opinions about policy. Meaning it's not just maybe unimportant stuff that this applies to, but very important things, too, like taxes and education and healthcare. We come to have strong opinions about these things because we're told we do. We're pulled in by the sports-team-like tribalness of modern political parties. But most of us could not actually explain why we feel the way we feel about these things, except by repeating slogans we're taught by voice boxes for these parties, the party line that they repeat ad infinitum on every talk show and news program, every public speech, podcast, radio show, and blog. We understand the publicly stated standpoints of the parties, but not the underlying issues themselves. This means that we are more likely to rely on prefabricated mental shortcuts when thinking about these issues, rather than thinking about them for ourselves. And a third very significant part of the issue is that we misremember important things about the past and use that misremembered information to make decisions about the future. A recent public opinion poll suggested that 59% of Americans thought they were living through the lowest point in U.S. history that they could remember. By most metrics, this statement is almost certainly false. In quantifiable terms, it's nonsensical. But for the people giving their opinions, it's true, because they're misremembering the past, allowing more recent information to supersede the more complete but more distant information. The key takeaway from this piece, then, is less about real movements in the opinions on the political right of the United States, and more about how Republicans are mirroring Trump's opinions on things, not because they necessarily agree with those things, or ever have but because they're using mental shortcuts and misremembering a time in which they statistically at least disagreed with these things also important to note is that it's easier to reframe one's past actions and opinions by making excuses or denying demonstrable fact about what you once believed than to mentally accept that your mind has changed that you have changed that's a very difficult mental hurdle to leap for anyone There are a lot of interesting takeaways from this piece and this discussion as a whole, and I think I can get to a lot of them by asking a series of questions and then attempting to answer them one at a time. For example, how do we get our points of view, our opinions, in the first place? There's a concept in biology called genetic memory, which refers to, in essence, knowledge that is passed on to our offspring via genetics. Rather than learning by experiencing, information is passed on to one's children through the wonders of our genetic information medium. But the language used here is imperfect in that it's not really knowledge being passed on, so much as responses and behaviors. A spider might be born, quote unquote, knowing how to make a web in a particular pattern, and a beaver might be born with the desire to go through a series of motions in response to the sound of running water actions which eventually lead to the formation of a dam. But this isn't knowledge in the sense that the creature performing these actions are born and can think, ah, how neat, I know how to build a dam. They're instinctually doing a series of things in response to other things, and those things they do add up to something greater, something that looks intentional. The same seems to be true of humans, in that we seem to be wired for numerous behaviors, and some of us, perhaps all of us, though the majority of well-known studies in this field have been done on savants, which is not representative. Some of us, though, have more specific behaviors that seem to have been passed on in some fashion. And just like the beaver building the dam, but not because it knows how to build a dam, a person who becomes a musical savant after an accident may have jogged loose some inherited behaviors that, when added together replicate the act of playing the piano or being able to draw a complex city skyline in graphite from memory almost perfectly there's still some disagreement about the extent to which information can be passed to offspring in this way and how that information might manifest in the next generation it could be something that we could someday learn to harness and amplify allowing us to give all of our offspring for instance mathematical genius and perfect pitch But at the moment, it's nowhere near that, and we don't fully understand the mechanism of the encoding, of how that information is utilized in the next generation, and what the full shape of this medium looks like to begin with. But this is something that we can clearly see in many species, even if it doesn't always take the same shape, and even if we can't cleanly fit it into our understanding of things like consciousness and intelligence. Though again, we don't understand those things either, so perhaps it's no surprise that we've got a lot to talk about here, but less that we can say with authority. But that's all related to behaviors, not opinions. Knowledge is one thing. It's data acquired about the world and processed, shelved in the recesses of our brains. Behaviors are things we do, some of which are derived from the knowledge we have, and some of which are more biological, or perhaps inherited based on genes or experiences, but still more reflexive than intentional, even if we justify them post hoc. Opinions are judgments about these things and everything else. They are decisions we've made about the shape of the world, sometimes based on data, sometimes based on a lack of data, and sometimes held for no reason that we can ascertain, but we hold them Nonetheless, we develop opinions in order to help us navigate the world. They are internal heuristics, they're mental shortcuts, that allow us to make split-second reflexive determinations about things, even if we've never encountered those things before. But just like other reflexes, like the subconscious triggers we often refer to as our instincts, our opinions are usually based on past experience meaning they're less likely to be as valuable when we're exposed to new information or situations, or if our past experiences have been unusual or misrepresentative. We'll still usually have opinions about these things, but those opinions will not be particularly well informed. If you try Mexican food for the first time, for example, and you don't like it, you may decide that you don't like Mexican food. That's your opinion. If the Mexican food you tried, though, was prepared by someone who doesn't actually know how to make Mexican food, and the food you ate was therefore unrepresentative of the cuisine, your opinion on the matter will be flawed, at least in the sense that it's based on non-representative quote-unquote Mexican food, rather than what most of us would think of when discussing the same. In this instance, you'd have an opinion about Mexican food that is informed by experiences you had with what was purported to be Mexican food, but your opinion would potentially negatively influence your future culinary experiences. You may, in fact, love true Mexican food, the good stuff prepared by people who know what they're doing. But because of that one non-representative experience, which you have no reason to recognize as having been non-representative, you may forever avoid Mexican food in the future, which is a major bummer. Opinions, then, are subjective. They are entirely based on our point of view. If we had all the data available about Mexican food, we would know that the one time we tried it was not representative and could withhold judgment until we had tried more. None of us has perfect information about anything, though. Not even about ourselves. And as a consequence, our opinions are usually more subjective than objective more based on limited personal experience than round, diversified experience mixed with demonstrable fact. It's worth mentioning here, too, that opinions are not provable or disprovable. If you say you don't like Mexican food, I could question the legitimacy of your opinion in terms of you're not having experienced much Mexican food in your life, which would be comparing the range of your experiences to someone else's range. But I can't tell you you're wrong. If you didn't like the Mexican food you had, you didn't like it. That's that. On the other hand, if you were to say Mexican food originates in Sweden, I could say, no, that's not true, and back up my assertion with data. My data would trump your data, and fact would win the day. So an opinion is something that can be held and even be correct, in a sense, even if it's not based on good data. It's correct in the sense that it's true for the subjective experience of a person rather than being true in an absolute sense. Our opinions become more widely applicable if we expand our horizons and try more things, collect more data. But an ignorant opinion, one held by a person who's only had Mexican food once, is just as valid for that person as a well-informed, well-rounded opinion held by someone who's eaten all kinds of food, including Mexican food, many times and from many sources. This doesn't mean that opinions are better than facts. And in general, facts are way, way more useful than opinions but it's important to separate the two because it helps us take a look at what people are saying and helps us better understand what they're demonstrating with their words rather than what they're trying to claim or what we assume they're trying to claim. So we get our opinions through experiences, and those experiences shape our future experiences, which then, in turn, help shape new opinions. And when we encounter something new, something unfamiliar, we tap into that existing amalgamation of knowledge and experience to derive new opinions from them. We didn't like Mexican food that one time, so we are less inclined to believe that we'll like it in the future. But we may also be less inclined to try Filipino food, because it's also foreign, and our brain is telling us, based on that Mexican food experience, that foreign stuff as a whole is probably not something we like. Many of our opinions, then, are informed either directly or indirectly by past experiences. Which means you may believe something right now, have an opinion that seems legit, and seems like it can't possibly be built upon some misconstrual or falsehood, but which is, in fact, a secondary consequence of a misrepresentative experience. How do our opinions change over time? As I mentioned, new experiences add to old experiences, which then aggregate into new opinions based on that combination. I like to picture this process as some kind of lens grinding. Picture yourself viewing the world through a pair of glasses, and the lenses on your glasses determine how you see the world. The same stuff is there for everyone to see, but your experience will be different than the person standing next to you because of how your lenses warp or tint or obscure or magnify what you're seeing. Your existing lenses are shaped by your previous experiences, and your new experiences will continue to reshape those lenses, will change the prescription or the tint or whatever else, as long as you live. That means our view of things, our understanding of what's happening around us, is always changing, in little ways and big ways, and having those reshaped lenses influences what happens to us next, which in turn influences how our lenses are reshaped in the future. There's a kind of compound interest situation happening here then, as your earliest experiences can reverberate throughout your life, even influencing things that you experience when you are quite old and how you perceive those things, in part because some of that original shaping might still be intact, and in part because those early reshapings determined the next reshaping and the next and the next all throughout your life, determining your contemporary lens shape. This is part of why that research in the Vox article is important. It would appear, based on that study at least, that we are likely to weigh our opinions more heavily in favor of new information. So even if we had better, more representative data informing our ideas in the past, the newer ones could win out and more heavily influence our decisions and our actions, even if they're less substantial than what we had before. This is part of why politicians struggle so mightily to be the last voice you hear on election day before you cast your vote, and it's part of why point-of-sale advertisements in grocery stores can be so effective. There's a lot of psychology behind both of those things, but part of why they work is that we are inclined to put more stock in the most recent data we've collected, and less stock in the less tangible-seeming past. How are we convinced of things? Or said another way, how are our opinions changed? This is a big question. There are so many different ways to influence another person's opinion. It's amazing any of us feel totally in control of our thought processes ever. I can give you a specific example from my past life doing branding work out in L.A., One of the major goals of a successful brand is to associate your business, your product, your service with other brands and things that are viewed favorably by the demographic that you're targeting. So if you're Apple and you want to associate your products with hip, young, creative professionals, you might create ads that feature indie bands that are just about to hit it big but haven't been absorbed into the mainstream quite yet. You might associate your products and processes with traditional design concepts and figures within the design and related industries. You might ensure that your marketing collateral are filled with images of hip, young, well-paid, but understated looking people who are out living their best lives with their iPhones and MacBooks playing an integral role in those lives, lives that are, for many people, aspirational. That's one way to change a person's mind about something. You can, through clever branding techniques, imbue a product or person or idea with traits that this product or person or idea does not latently have. They may come to seem to be hip or valuable or aesthetically edgy, but until those associations are made, it's less likely that the majority of people will make those associations. They'll make other, uncontrolled associations, and though that can sometimes roll in your favor, sometimes the public will recognize good stuff without having to be convinced it's good stuff, but that's not what a brand wants. They want more control, because they could instead come to be associated with anything at all, based on the experiences of the public, and that could spell disaster in terms of reaching their intended market and their brand's value, the extra profit they can make just for being themselves once they've aligned themselves in the mind of the consumer with these positive things. Our opinions are also bent and changed by opinion leaders, people we trust for one reason or another, influencers, to use the common social media vernacular, The concept of influence goes beyond the world of social media, though. One example of an opinion leader might be a scientist. Someone who, presumably, as long as they're speaking about science they've done or researched at least, has some concrete evidence to support the information they're giving you. You may not have done the research yourself and therefore have to rely on a certain amount of trust that they're telling you accurate data. But if you do choose to trust the scientific community surrounding them, your opinion can be changed by the discoveries they make and data they make available. They have influenced your opinions, quite possibly, by building a system of checks and balances, a mostly reliable structure that you consider to be trustworthy. Another good example of an opinion leader, an influencer, might be the employee working at the local indie bookstore who recommends books she thinks you might enjoy. Her recommendations don't have any scientific weight behind them in the sense that they're worked through a process with many people involved intent on checking the validity of the data presented. But the recommendations she makes do, in theory at least, carry more weight than similar recommendations presented by someone who has never read a book before. Both people can give you ideas about what to read and thereby change your opinion of what kind of books you will probably like but one of them, presumably, will more often be correct, though there's no way to know for certain. And then finally, you might encounter an opinion leader who is trusted not because they know anything about what they're talking about, but because they're well known for something, and presumably respected for some kind of accomplishment or knowledge in some field of inquiry. This might be, for instance, a celebrity who runs for public office A wealthy entrepreneur who gives advice about living a healthy lifestyle, or a parent who shares their opinion about a group of people they've never met. We take these people's advice more seriously in some ways because they are influential when it comes to some aspect of life, but it's more out of reflex than anything. We don't have any reason to trust them any more than some random person about this other non-adjacent topic, this thing that they are not experts on. And yet a concept called transference causes us to tend to do so. The same mental shortcut that helps us trust actual experts and rely on what they tell us more than some rando from Twitter can cause us to trust non-experts who happen to be known to us in some non-relevant way. So it's an example of a mental shortcut that can sometimes help us, but which can also allow others to manipulate us. Our minds can also be changed, of course. Just by living, by experiencing new things. The more food you eat, the more likely you are to form a round, three dimensional opinion about food. You won't always end up with a maximally informed opinion, but you'll become increasingly likely to form such an opinion the more data you have available. And that data will be more likely to be beneficial to you if it's firsthand, experiential data, rather than data that is filtered through someone else's lens, someone else's biases. You can also learn more indirectly by reading books and researching things. You needn't have lived in Pax Romana era Rome to learn something about the height of the Roman Empire and something about how civilizations fall. You needn't bake a cake to understand the chemistry of how baking works and what you are likely to get as a result of following a recipe. Book knowledge about a thing will often help you understand things in different ways than experiencing them firsthand. But both sides of that coin of learning can be valuable, and they tend to complement each other well. They're better together than separate. What is manipulation, and how does it differ from convincing? Manipulation differs from simply providing information to a person, in that you're providing information with the intent of getting them to do something. You're not just presenting the facts and all the facts. You're presenting those facts in a certain order, maybe leaving some out, maybe including some less than factual information alongside the real facts. And you're presenting it in a way that is more likely to convince the target to ignore other conflicting information. Arguably, a lot of legit, less biased information is presented in a similar way. We tend to remember information contained within stories. Within understandable narratives, better than information provided in a spreadsheet. So, a lot of well meaning, not intending to be manipulative data is delivered to us in a package that can bear the hallmarks of manipulation. So, it's important to recognize that there's a very thin line between the two. And one person's data delivery will be another person's manipulation. I could tell you a story that helps you understand which nuts and berries are safe to eat in a nearby forest. But based on how I tell that story, you may walk away with opinions about which foods are inherently superior in general, how a person should spend their time, and which flavors are good and desirable and which are not. This may not seem that similar to telling a story which is meant to convince a person that a certain religious group is evil or that the other party's candidate is a criminal, but it's the same mechanism at work in a lot of ways. When we attempt to convince, we're almost always also attempting to manipulate. Sometimes that manipulation is positive, sometimes it's negative, but that judgment about whether it's positive or negative is also an opinion, which can be swayed by manipulation. This is part of why noticing manipulation can be so tricky. It's in some cases only subjectively different from honest, well-meaning convincing. What does one's opinion have to do with one's other knowledge-based traits, like intelligence and ignorance and gullibility. I'm stacking the deck a little by choosing the phrasing of that question carefully, but bear with me. A person's opinions have little or nothing to do with a person's intelligence, at least not in the way that we usually use the word intelligence. Often, When we encounter an opinion with which we disagree, we will decry it as stupid or ignorant when in reality, it's merely something with which we disagree. Intelligence implies an ability to learn, to pick up new information and work it into one's mental models, to perhaps derive new information from existing information. Ignorance implies that a person doesn't know certain information, so a smart person can be ignorant but they may also be more capable of alleviating their ignorance, of learning something new, of learning new information, than someone who is less intelligent. So you may be incredibly knowledgeable about a particular field, say biology, but incredibly ignorant about another field, let's say politics. None of this implies anything about your intelligence, nor does it imply anything about your opinions. That said, a person who knows a lot about biology and little about politics is more likely to have better informed opinions about the former and less informed opinions about the latter. She might have a great deal of knowledge to back up her assertion that GMOs are generally benign, for instance, and little knowledge to back up her assertion that a particular mayoral candidate is the right choice for her priorities. Conflating opinions with cognitive capability is not ideal. And conflating opinion with ignorance is also not ideal, though there is a correlation between a person's greater knowledge about a particular subject and the likelihood that their opinion within that narrow subject is informed rather than uninformed, that they know why they believe something and have taken a lot of information into account and fully understand their opinion rather than simply regurgitating slogans and catchphrases and taking on the colors of a particular team, a borrowed opinion. Gullibility in this context is more common when a person is ignorant about a particular subject, but wants to have an opinion about it. And if we're being honest, most of us want to have opinions about things, because we don't want to be seen as ignorant, but the implication being that our ignorance would then mean that we're not intelligent. This is the root of a lot of issues. Being ignorant doesn't mean we're not intelligent, but the perception that those two things are linked causes us to form opinions without the requisite knowledge that would allow us to have informed opinions. As a result, we take what we're handed, we mimic other people with whom we tend to agree on completely separate topics, and that adds to the number of people supporting a particular perspective even if the majority of people who purport to share that opinion would not hold to that opinion if they actually had more information, if they were more informed. This is what gullibility means in this context. It's when we're convinced to fall into lockstep behind an idea because we have been, in essence, marketed to by people who know how to make us feel informed when we are not. This is something that all politicians, well, their teams and their parties anyway, do. This is something that all brands do. Anyone with a cause who wants you to support their cause likely has some plan to get more people on board using this technique. And part of why this is necessary, or seems to be necessary, to those who would convince you of things and add you to their numbers at least, is that the more people they get on board, the more likely other, also ill-informed people, will be to join. This is what's called the bandwagon effect we feel more inclined to join what seems to be a popular cause. But only if there are other people on board already. We want to hop on board the bandwagon. And though we might be uninformed about a particular topic, the implication is that because others agree with this perspective, we can set aside our ignorance and assume that they know what they're talking about, ignoring the possibility that they are just as uninformed as we are, and that we've all been rallied and told which words to shout by a small group of clever orchestrators taking advantage of our gullibility. So what does all this mean for how we view ourselves and the world? It could be incredibly disconcerting. It certainly is for me, and this is something I've spent a good portion of my life wading through, and even being a part of to some degree, due to my time working in branding and related fields. None of these techniques or tendencies are inherently negative. They could be used to make people more likely to care about deforestation and helping sick children, but they're often used for things that are negative to someone, if not everyone. Support for some ideologies and brands are, by definition, zero-sum. So even if you're convinced to give money to a charity that's helping to save starving children, that means you're not giving that money to a charity that's trying to cure malaria. This knowledge and this way of seeing the world with one eye peeking behind the curtain could change the way you think about yourself and the way you think about how you think. It could, for instance, cause you to more carefully consider your opinions and question their legitimacy. This can be discombobulating, but it can also be a valuable, hopefully semi-regular, at least, practice. It's not always possible to clearly identify all the reasons we feel a particular way, support a particular candidate, prefer a particular brand over a competing brand, but it's possible to be more aware of such things, and even more difficult in some ways, but still possible. We can even change our minds when it becomes clear that our opinions on anything are based on nothing more than convenience or incomplete or fake data. It could be that we were sold on a brand, not the reality behind that brand, and we have the power to rethink what we buy. When it comes to politics, a lot of the discussions we have tend to surround just two or three major issues at a time. In the U.S., these are issues like abortion rights, healthcare, and taxes, all of which are important issues, but absolutely not the only issues, and for many people, not the most important ones either. Allowing ourselves to become more aware of other issues that are not part of the popular narrative can help us extract ourselves from the political PR circus. And allowing ourselves to consider gray areas between the black and white options that we are presented with can do the same. Ideally, we're aware of how we feel about things and why we feel the way we feel. But typically, we don't just know these things. We're not just aware of this information. It requires self-exploration, and that process requires a great deal of backtracking and sieving through memories and experiences to understand where our opinions came from. This makes it less likely that we'll be taken in by appealing opinions that are ultimately not compatible with our actual priorities and beliefs, which in turn makes it more likely that we'll be able to fully invest ourselves in the stances that we take. Because we can be more confident the ones we do line up behind actually align with who we are as individuals. So it's not an easy process, but it is worthwhile, in my opinion. There was an interesting piece in Lifehacker recently about a conversation that Hank and John Green, who are authors and online personalities, among other things, had at a live recording of their podcast, Dear Hank and John, recently. The basis of this conversation was that there are too many strong opinions on the internet, and that in most cases, these opinions are pretty pointless. Having a strong opinion that you then feel compelled to defend to the death takes up time and mental energy. And the idea is that by having fewer strong opinions about things that don't actually matter, things that you don't actually know about, you're spending your time and attention more intentionally. So as an experiment, the brothers decided to rid themselves of one opinion every day to see how they felt. An example given is that one of them stopped having an opinion about professional wrestling, something he couldn't really care less about, but which he felt compelled to have an opinion about because, I mean, if someone asks, you have to say something, right? The author of this piece in Lifehacker decided to do the same, and he rid himself of opinions about pairs. Fiats, Taylor Swift, and the Assassin's Creed video game series. I find this idea appealing, in part because it makes clear and concrete that you needn't have opinions about things just to have opinions about things. You needn't participate in every outrage storm that passes through your social media feed, and you needn't get stressed when someone presents an opinion about something that seems wrong but about which you're ill-informed. I know very little about professional wrestling myself, but if someone tells me they're totally into it, I'd like to be curious about why, to learn what they know, rather than immediately jump into a conversation about why they're wrong or right based on ignorant preconceived notions that I have on the matter. Not having a horse in most races frees you up to focus on the ones in which you do. It allows you to spend more time and energy becoming more informed about things rather than simply forming strong opinions about them and then calling it a day. This doesn't mean you won't be tempted to jump into discussions about which you know little, and it doesn't mean that you will always recognize when you're arguing in favor or against something about which you're ill-informed. Part of being ill-informed, after all, is that you don't know enough to realize how little you know much of the time, but you can build up a heuristic about this over time, which could result in pulling back and checking yourself more frequently. It's tricky to do, but it is doable. Knowing all this, it should be no surprise then, going back to the original article, why Republicans, in this case, are so willing to shift their opinions to align with what's become the new normal in their party. We are all just really, really good at changing our minds, especially when we're not paying super close attention to the topics in question. And the majority of us, though we have strong opinions about politics, are remarkably ignorant about politics. I'm willing to bet that a study conducted about beliefs popular within the Democratic Party, the Libertarian Party, and so on, would come to similar conclusions. These are topics we are encouraged to get livid about, but for which we are seldom given real resources that might actually help us educate ourselves. I think it's only fitting that I end this discussion with a question rather than any specific call to action, particularly since I don't think there's just one way to respond to this information. And that question is this, how might you rethink and manage your information intake and your self-education and self-assessment habits so that you can feel more confident that your opinions are well-informed ones? if you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com slash letsknowthings, you can contribute whatever makes sense to you based on how much value you're getting from this show and your financial situation. And as a consequence, you will become part of the community over there and you will become one of my favorite people. There are also many non-monetary ways to help support the show, leaving a review up on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts is a much bigger help than you might suspect, as is sharing the show with a friend or sharing your favorite episode with your social network of choice. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors, the first of which today is Audible. You go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you'll receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice, which is yours to keep whether or not you stick with them past that free trial period. If you've yet to dip your toes into the audiobook scene, this is a great way to check it out and see what role it may play in your life. AudibleTrial.com slash LKT. And the other sponsor today is HostGator. If you go to HostGator.com slash LKT, you'll receive a substantial discount off of their already very reasonable prices, whatever plan you end up deciding to go with. HostGator.com slash LKT. Instead of recommending a book today, I'd actually like to recommend an app. I've been doing a lot of reading and self-education recently about economics more broadly, but also investing and trading in particular, as it was something that I never really understood but wanted to learn more about. But the entry into learning about these things in a hands-on way can be a little bit intimidating, and if you don't have tons of money or don't want to have to pay a significant amount of money just to dip your toes in the water... It can be difficult to find a way to get started and to work past the initial frictions when you don't know anything to a point where you know enough to actually understand what's going on. And something that helped me a whole lot with that is an app that I discovered a little while ago, probably a year ago, but didn't start using until a couple months ago when I started to learn about these things. And that app is called Robinhood. What makes it special is that unlike most brokers, which are the intermediaries between you and the stock market in this case, you don't have to put in a minimum amount and you don't have to pay a fee when you trade. And importantly, for my purposes too, you can buy odd lots, meaning that you don't have to buy chunks of 100 shares at a time. You could buy one share of something, or five, or seven, or 22 however much makes sense for you. As a consequence, I've been able to jump in and experiment and try things out and see how things work and become comfortable with the concept of buying stocks and buying them for investment and for trading. For other purposes, more faster-paced trading rather than holding them for a very long time. And I've been able to figure out what my preference is in that regard without paying an arm and a leg just to get started. A lot of the cheaper brokers that I'm aware of charge anywhere between $5 and $15 per trade. So if you don't know what you're doing and you're trying to learn, that is a very expensive means of learning. Robinhood takes all that away. They make their money, kind of like a bank makes their money, by earning interest on the money that you put into your Robinhood account. But it's super simple. It's worth checking out if you get the chance. I love the hell out of this app. It's available for iOS and Android, and they're not a sponsor or anything. They're not paying me to say anything about them. I just really love it, but they do have an affiliate thing. So if you sign up through letsnotethings.com Robinhood, both you and I will get a free stock which it may be something that's worth $2. It may be something that's worth $50, but either way, you will own a stock if you start using this app. And I think you have to put some money in there, but it doesn't have to be much. So it's worth checking out if this is at all interesting. I would not recommend trading stocks to try to make money. There are much better ways to do that, much faster. And I wouldn't recommend it if you don't have money to lose. Don't put anything into this that you cannot afford to lose. But if like me, You've always been curious about this, you think it would be interesting, something that you would enjoy. This is a really great option. Let's note things.com/robinhood. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at XLLifestyle.com. and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.